entering the Freedom Hut. Congress is making some noise about war powers. We'll get into that. Plus, is Nancy Pelosi's scheme working when it comes to withholding the articles of impeachment? And we do have confirmation now from numerous sources that the Iranians shot that plane out of the sky, killing hundreds of civilians. We'll get into that and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you very much for being here. We had some news break uh, before we came on air. I just wanted to update you that um, we now have numerous sources uh, based on Iraqi and uh, Iraqi military and U.S. Pentagon reports that the plane that was taking off from Tehran International Airport en route to Kiev in Ukraine um, was, in fact, shot out of the sky, uh, appears to be an accident by the Iranians using a, what is known in NATO parlance as a gauntlet anti-aircraft missile system. So not exactly clear how such a, a horrific and catastrophic blunder could have been made this way, but uh, it is exactly what many of us were expecting. That's why I was talking to you yesterday on the show about the shootdown of MH17 over Ukraine, remember, with Russian-backed, uh, or well, with Ukrainian separatists with Russian military equipment. It seems that uh, we have another man-caused airline tragedy here, and we'll have updates for you on that as we can. But that was my expectation. I didn't want to get too ahead of where the facts are, and, and sure enough, that is exactly what happened. So we have uh, two moving pieces right now on Capitol Hill. You're, you're in a moment here of a narrative reset, right? There's not yet an impeachment trial. And there's not yet any major uh, hostilities, military hostilities with Iran underway. And so what you have right now is a, a circumstance in which the Republicans, some of the Republicans in the Senate are deciding to make a lot of noise about war powers. And then also Nancy Pelosi is uh, is dancing and moving around and doing whatever she has to do, giving press conferences. She had one this morning, just just babbling, babbling on. Nancy Pelosi gets uh, much more credit for being a tactical and strategic genius than she deserves. She deserves no credit for those things. Uh, she is cunning. She is not an intellectual. She is not strategic and she is not ethical, but she is cunning. Uh, but, you know, so was Pablo Escobar. I mean, there are a lot of people that understand the, base, uh, the basic will to power and are willing to do whatever they need to to get it. That's not something that we necessarily should admire. In fact, in many cases, it's a cause for a tremendous concern. Uh, Pelosi is not some grand strategist. She just rules with an iron fist. You know, so did Stalin. Now, I'm not comparing Pelosi to Stalin, but I'm just saying because she's able to get people to do what she says in a Democratic Party that increasingly emotionally and intellectually is dominated by the likes of, uh, what, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders, right? Uh, these are the people who are the current id of the Democratic Party. They are the, the center, the core, the, uh, the 
most important uh, power and messaging area of the Democratic Party today. So we, we want to get into that. But, but I, I want to first start actually with the Republicans, if I can, um, because, you know, you haven't heard a lot from recently is uh, Mike Lee. And, and I'm going to say this. I, I remember I interviewed Mike back in the day. Um, and maybe we can have him back. I, I, didn't, I found him. I mean, look, if you're somebody that really likes to hear someone try to turn everything into a lesson about the Constitution, you might find Mike Lee really, really interesting. If you think that sometimes that can be a little bit, uh, that he can be a bit verbose and not everything is necessary of a constitutional discourse, well, then maybe you don't find Mike Lee. Oh, look, he's, he's a good guy. And I'm not saying anything other than that. He's a good man. But I, I would say that uh, Mike Lee is very fond of giving lectures on, on the Constitution. And, and here's what I would say about yesterday. Oh, and, and by the way, Rand Paul, too. Look, I like Rand Paul on some things. I think that Rand Paul can be a very important voice. And I think he, I think he is a principled guy. Um, I, I suppose I have a little bit more, I, I give a little bit more leeway to Rand than I do to uh, Mike Lee on some of these issues. And that's just a personal preference thing. So I'm trying to be honest with you about it. But here, here's Rand. I thought we had Mike Lee, but we have Rand Paul coming out of this. Do we have Mike? We do? Oh, I'm sorry. Play, play Mike Lee coming out of, this is now the White House, uh, White House National Security officials, Pentagon officials briefing the uh, members of the Senate, and I, I forget who was, I think it was a CIA director, uh, so that's executive branch. I think there were some U.S. mill in there, too, but senior level executive branch folks briefing senators on the decision to strike Qasem Soleimani. Mike Lee was um, unhappy about it. Play it. We were brought into this briefing today to talk to us about that attack on Friday. I had hoped and expected to receive more information outlining the legal, factual, and moral justification for the attack. I was left somewhat unsatisfied on that front. The briefing lasted only 75 minutes, whereupon our briefers left. This, however, is not the biggest problem I have with the briefing which I would add was probably the worst briefing I've seen, at least on a military issue, in the nine years I've served in the United States Senate. What I found so distressing about that briefing was that one of the messages we received from the briefers was, do not debate, do not discuss the issue of the appropriateness of further military intervention against Iran. Hmm. I mean, that, that does seem a bit strange. Mike Lee seems very, very upset here. But I have a, a slightly different, uh, or a different, not slightly, take on all of this, which is that uh, Congress um, appears to want to take back its war powers after 19 years of abdication by now, and this is what may happen in the House, voting on a non-binding resolution to voice their opinion on a war with Iran that is not happening. President Trump does not want to go to war with Iran. We now have ample evidence of that. The people who said that taking out Qasem Soleimani was going to lead to a massive conflagration, U.S. toppling of the regime in Tehran, all of these things, that just did not happen. Didn't happen. And people can ignore that now. They can pretend that at some point in the future it might. And that's always true. You can always just extend out the timeline so you look like you are less wrong or not wrong. But I would like to know exactly what the 
objection is specifically that Mike Lee has. I mean, okay, if someone in the executive branch said, let's not undermine the president publicly by saying he shouldn't be able to do anything here. Well, that's their opinion. Mike Lee's allowed to ignore their opinion. So he can he cannot like the briefing. That's fine. But he's very he was I've never seen Mike Lee so huffy about anything. And I would just note that uh, it's interesting to me to see members of Congress after we've had never mind all the other uh, additional military operations and paramilitary operations in the case of, say, CIA and intelligence activities all over the world. We've had that going on for how many years now? Two decades. Congress was willing to give the president the authority to go to war. They voted on that for the Iraq war, right? And um, yet here we are now looking at what's going on today. And they're very upset at the prospect of war with Iran. And I would just say, okay, there's not going to be a war with Iran, Uh, at least not under this president at this time. It's just just not happening. But they seem particularly upset about this. uh, Chuck Schumer, wait, hold on, we'll, we'll get to Schumer in a second, because everybody very upset about this. Members of Congress are complaining about it all over the place. And then you had, uh, where, where, I was trying to find uh, Rand Paul. Where did my man Rand go? I do, I do like Rand, even though he's not the warmest and cuddliest fellow. I can tell you that from my numerous interactions with him. Yeah, play clip 12. They have justified the killing of an Iranian general as being something that Congress gave them permission to do in 2002. That is absurd. That's an insult. And every time someone writes that Congress needs to take back their authority on war, that's what we're here to do. Let's have the debate and let's have some senators stand up and let's see if we can really, truly have a debate over who has the power to declare war. Well, here's the problem. And you can go back to the Federalist Papers to see this debate played out a couple of centuries ago and what the founders really thought about this. I mean, the reason we have a an executive branch that has the authority and the powers that it does is, for example, to be able to repel an invasion or in cases of extremists, meaning there's an imminent threat, the executive branch can take action. It does not require a vote from Congress, right? If, if we thought if there were Iranian planes in the sky about to drop bombs all over a U.S. facility in the Middle East, uh, the president doesn't go to Congress and say, hold on a second, guys, can we shoot those planes out of the sky? Now, this is a long and, and it's a worthwhile debate and discussion. The public should know about this. But I think that it's right now, let's be honest about it. It's a lot of posturing for members of Congress. It is a lot of posturing. Uh, nothing is really going to change. So while they can be upset about this and the the non-interventionist uh, you know, one of the problems you have with with the non-interventionist uh, voice, as it is within the GOP now, and I, I consider myself largely non-interventionist now as well. I mean, I usually agree with what Rand Paul is saying about U.S. actions in the Middle East. I mean, I usually agree with those who have taken the position. I've taken the position. I debated last year at CPAC with uh, who's that fellow, sort of large fellow, broad fellow from the. Uh, Washington, Mark Thiessen, very nice guy. Uh, I I debated with him last year at CPAC on this very issue about U.S. troops in Syria. I don't think that we should be taking on the mission set of stabilization in that country, which, by the way, if you're going to have a permanent military presence there or, or, you know, it's going to be there for years and years, you're going to set up a base, you're going to have logistics, you're going to have resupply. Guess what? Now you are part of stability operations in that country. You can pretend you're not, but you are. So I didn't think that was a good idea. Um, But this... There's this old saying in the State Department, 
And it's one of my favorites because I've sat in many meetings with State Department officials or did sit in many meetings with State Department officials back in the day. And they always say that there are three options, right? Suffer in silence, nuclear war, or do some diplomacy. The idea here being, of course, well, well, then we really need our diplomats because the options are suffer in silence or nuclear war, and those aren't good. So I guess we got to do more diplomacy. Okay, the problem with that is that there's a lot in between suffering and nuclear war, and that's what we have been reminded of with the Iranians. You know, at, at what point have they, they are testing, they're testing our defenses. They are trying to see what lines they can cross. And this president decided that the old line of as long as you don't do something horrifically egregious openly as the Iranian government, killing Americans, taking credit for it. And even at that point, you could say in Iraq, I mean, they were doing it through proxies, but it was very obvious who was going what was going on there. Uh, look, I mean, I think that that was, uh, you know, the as I'm describing to you what the what the red line used to be. I think the fundamental flaw in all this was that the old red line wasn't even that you couldn't kill Americans. The Bush administration, because it got so beat down in Iraq, was saying, OK, well, we can't take on Iran, too. So the red line all of a sudden fell back to you can't kill large number of, large numbers of Americans all at once in somewhere other than Iraq. Trump came along and said, OK, no, no, we're going to redo this. And now it's you're not only you're, you're not going to be able to threaten to kill a lot of Americans in Iraq or we're coming after you. If you kill our people, we will kill you. It's a very straightforward rule. That is the Trump doctrine. And to have members of Congress act like there's some huge, oh, my gosh, you know, what are we going to do about this? Guys, what is your what is your real what is your real ask of the president? That he come to you for permission before he does the customs? Think, think about how that would go. And also, let's be serious. What do we think of the operational security concerns about this? Do you really trust every Democrat not to leak that to the media, to then leak it publicly so that even someone like Qasem Soleimani might get word of it? People get mad at me for saying this. I don't trust the Democrats. I don't trust the Democrats with this stuff. Trump obviously doesn't trust them very much because he doesn't give them the courtesy prior notification before a major strike like this. Um, so Mike Lee says it's the worst briefing he's seen. He doesn't like it. Rand Paul says it's a bad briefing. He doesn't like it. You know who else doesn't like it? Chuck Schumer. Play clip 11. There were so many important questions that they did not answer. We did not see a plan, a satisfying plan for the future. We had 97 senators there. 15 got to ask questions. As the questions began to get tough, they walked out. I've asked for a commitment that they all come back within a week. We have not yet gotten that commitment. Bunch of senators trying to find out what exactly, what the future holds. The, the people in that room, CIA director and, and others, they, they, don't, they don't know what the future holds. And they can't make the kind of promises that these senators want, which they say is all about restoring Congress's right to declare war. But ultimately, they also are asking for constraints on the executive branch. You know, ultimately, there are additional considerations and concerns that come into play here that members of the Senate, members of the Congress are not taking uh, particularly seriously as they look at this, or not at least not understanding fully as they look at this. Oh, we got one more here. Tulsi. You know, you guys, some of you get mad at me. You say I'm a little too, a little too sweet on Tulsi just because she's got that aloha spirit and she surfs and stuff and doesn't seem, you know, she serves her country in the military. It's not, it's not some 
hateful, psychopathic Democrat like so many of the other ones. Um, but that doesn't mean that she's right on stuff. She's wrong on pretty much everything. Um, but she did not like the Iran briefing either. Play 10. I just came from the intelligence briefing that the administration came and brought to Congress. Really, they provided vague comments, no justification whatsoever for this illegal and unconstitutional act of war that President Trump took. <sighs> no justification. The president of the United States said there was an imminent threat against an enemy combatant, a designated terrorist by the Obama administration, by the way. That so quickly gets left out of this conversation. Where were all these Democrats when Obama was giving an entirely based on secret information that was not made public, that did not have to be justified? Obama was droning a U.S. citizen and his minor son. I'm not crying any tears for the guy in Yemen, but let's be serious. The Obama administration was waging a drone war in Pakistan, a country that we are not at war with, killing how many people? Hundreds and hundreds of strikes. Lots of civilians killed. Were the Democrats all? No, of course. This is all politics, my friends. It's just, it's just hot air coming from most of these people. Some of them, I think, have some principle. I do think Lee, Lee and Rand Paul have principles, but we know Democrats don't have principles. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. It's really amazing, isn't it? You have all these people who were claiming that we were about to get hit with this huge Iranian strike. Now we see that the Iranians blew a civilian airliner out of the sky with their uh, on the Iraq on Iraqi soil. What turned into what was essentially a very expensive uh, fireworks show, as my friend and uh, colleague Jim Carafano said from the Heritage Foundation about that strike. So, I mean, the, the Iranians blew a plane out of their own airspace, a civilian airliner, in trying to retaliate against us. The retaliation against us was nothing. And yet we still have all these people telling us that we need to avoid, that, that, that war is imminent. I mean, look, I don't want war with Iran either. The president doesn't want war with Iran. There are, I, I'm waiting for someone to stand up who has any power or authority or sway whatsoever who says, you know what I think would be a great idea? Let's go to war with Iran. I just don't see it. I haven't heard. Okay, maybe Bolton. Maybe, maybe Bolton. Maybe. If I'm going to be fair about it. I think, I think Bolton has learned no lessons in 20 years. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. There is absolutely no justification. This imminent, we've been lied into war before. Unfortunately, I had a front row seat to that. And I know how that was uh, approached. And I see this all over again, uh, where the intelligence is so thin. And I want to point something out that I don't think anyone's really noticed, which is, on one hand, you have Trump denigrating the intelligence community if they do something that he does not deem uh, in his favor. On the other hand, now we're supposed to take everything they say as trust us, the intelligence community told us that we have imminent uh, information about an imminent threat. You can't have it both ways. Valerie Plame, um, noted fraud and, and anti-Semite, by the way, running for Congress as a Democrat, of course, uh, someone who was willing to just go along for the ride as angry Democrats tried to, uh, dis well, they really were going after Karl Rove and thought maybe they would get Dick Cheney with, oh, that's right, a special counsel under Bush. People forget about that. It's almost like the Democrats play the same game every time. Weaponize the process, use investigations when you can't convince the people to agree with you and you can't get power through Democratic means that way. Find some 
power mad deep state bureaucrats, Patrick Fitzgerald being the one in mind here, uh, who has a long history, by the way, of going after very convenient targets from the Democratic point of view, Democratic political uh, targets, meaning that targets the Democrats want him to go after, and then having to be slapped down even by the Supreme Court, as you see with the prosecution of Conrad Black, and as you see with President uh, Bush's commutation of the uh, Scooter Libby prosecution and conviction, um, Republicans, some of them just aren't really willing to fight back. Just a commutation at the very last minute. It was, uh, it was a stunning circumstance that President Bush was unwilling to do what was necessary there. I'm telling you, Bush was beaten down. Bush term two, and I, I saw him, I talked to him, I know. You could tell. You look in the guy's eyes. He was beaten down. Yeah, you had Democrats calling him a war criminal. I mean, it, the whole thing was, was completely insane. This is what Democrats do all the time. Everything is, oh my gosh, the world is going to end. We're not getting our way. They're just a giant. It really is the party of crybabies. Just a bunch of crybabies. A bunch of, of unrealistic, unaccountable, whiny crybabies. I mean, that's the, if you're looking for the modern ethos of the Democratic Party, and that's really what it is. But back to, so Valerie Plame saying we're going to get lied, lied into war here. Um, you remember, she, she was so upset about being outed uh, that she posed in the cover of Vanity Fair right away. That's how upset she, it was, it was really traumatizing to her. And they made this horrifically bad movie uh, about her. As if uh, Novak publishing her name, this, this was retaliation. Who cares? The bureaucrat, little bureaucrats running around everywhere in the intelligence community. The whole thing was absurd. It was absurd. But... The Democrat story around it is, oh, tra- oh, that's right. Bush was a, was a traitor, too. Remember that? This was, this was their, oh, Bush is a traitor narrative. Somehow Republicans never really win elections. 2000, Al Gore, Florida, uh, 2016, Russia, Trump. Republican presidents are always traitors. You know, uh, Bush, Cheney, Valerie Plame's name in the press. You know, now, of course, Russia collusion with Trump. Republican presidents are always uh, senile or crazy uh, or, you know, uh, essentially complete, complete and utter morons. This is what they say about all presidents stretching back to Reagan. It's never just, you know, maybe let's see how they do. I don't know. I, I can't think of a serious human being uh, that I would respect their opinion at this point who would say that the first four years of of Obama's presidency have been better than the first four years, or rather going into the fourth year, I should say, but the first three years versus the first three years, um, Trump is better. Trump is better at the job. His foreign policy is better. His economy is better. His domestic policy is better all across the board. I mean, if you're really into wokeness and if you really want to see a huge anti-police movement across the country and you want to see parts of U.S. cities burning down during race riots. I mean, you know, then then you could have liked what was going on during the previous administration a whole lot, a whole lot more. Um, But no, we have uh, something else today. We have a a different approach and we're being told all this crazy stuff by Democrats who refuse, refuse to accept the reality where this is. So so since we're talking about uh, crazy Democrats, which is obviously a favorite topic of mine, um, we have uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal. Now, one of the big, uh, I'm going to play what she said about the Qasem Soleimani killing in a second. One of the big complaints that you've heard from Democrats is that Republicans are unfairly saying that 
Democrats are sad or mourning that Qasem, Qasem Soleimani was killed or that, you know, they're taking the opposite side from the United States. I, I don't understand how people could see what the Democrats have been doing here. At every step of at every step of this whole process with Qasem Soleimani, Iran, the standoff, they have taken the the position in their analysis and they've taken the position in terms of where they've put their support that is oppositional to the United States. I, I don't know how else you can see it. They're not on our team because all that matters is the defeat of Donald Trump. Everything else is is a completely irrelevant consideration for them. Here is Pramila Jayapal um, talking about the strike on Soleimani. Play four. This is the result of reckless actions by President Trump of military brinksmanship. President Trump recklessly assassinated Qasem Soleimani. He had no evidence of an imminent threat or attack. And we say that coming from a classified briefing where, again, there was no raw evidence presented that there was an imminent threat. Recklessly assassinated Qasem Soleimani. Why was it reckless? In fact, I think, if anything, it has change the dynamic between the U.S. and Iran and the Middle East in a way that favors U.S. national security interests. Um, look at the way that the Israelis deal with their enemies. Do the Israelis sit around and have all these, these hand-wringing discussions about, oh, um, you know, there are Hezbollah terrorists running around Syria preparing to do something bad against us. Maybe we should go ask the U.N. before we... No, the Israelis are like, sorry, we're just going to defend ourselves. And now people will say, but the Iranians think they're defending themselves, right? Well, this is where you get into the separation between a, a very important, a, a foundational separation between the way Democrats and Republicans see America and the way it acts in the world. We see the world in terms of there are good regimes and bad regimes. There are good guys and bad guys. It's not the same thing when the good guys take action as when the bad guys take action. You know, the Nazis in World War II had whole, you know, justifications for the invasion of Poland. And you look at Danzig, you look at the way that it was, oh, we're, we're defending our people and they stage things. And, you know, yeah, they, they had stories about how they were just defending themselves or they were, you know, they're the Nazis. They're the bad guys. Right? We're the good guys. Uh, Democrats like to play this game of, oh, no, everyone's everyone's just pursuing their interests and it's all the same. That's just not true. Uh, in fact, one of the most troubling things we've seen is Democrats like Jayapal here. And by the way, they're not they're not presenting if they're not presenting raw classified information to some of these members of Congress to justify the attack. Uh, maybe it's because they don't trust them, which is possible. I know that that's unsettling for some to hear, but that's certainly possible. It's also the case that Qasem Soleimani was standing outside the United States embassy that had just been assaulted and was orchestrating the whole thing. And maybe we didn't want to wait for round two. And maybe we felt like enough is enough. This guy's killed a lot of Americans. He's killed a lot of Muslims all across the Middle East, too. He supports actual designated terrorist groups. You know, they keep saying this. Oh, but, you know, why is that different? I'm seeing a lot of leftists. So so he he's pursuing Iranian. He's an Iranian general pursuing Iranian military ends. OK, well, ISIS had uniforms. ISIS was uh, ISIS had all the trappings of a government. We just didn't say they were a government. So does ISIS get, you know, should we treat the uh, leadership of, well, now gone, thank you, Trump, but should we have treated them like we treat the Canadians? You know, it's a government, a government, it's all the same, right? It's all the same. These are, these are recurring themes, right? The, the 
intellectual rot of the Democratic Party is moral relativism. They, they refuse to make moral distinctions because when you make moral distinctions, then you're also accountable for your decision making and your actions in ways that people on the left just don't want to be. It's always you just kind of can always, always muddy the waters, always make things a little fuzzy in ways that benefit you or your team or your politics or your sense of what you want in the world. That's the great thing about leftists. Being a leftist means you're never accountable for anything. You know, it's always, oh, you know, real socialism wasn't tried. Iran is just pursuing its interests like everybody else pursues their interests. You know, they're no different than, that government's no different than anybody else. Republicans are like, no, it's actually part of the axis of evil and is the greatest state sponsor of terror in the world. And we're going to kill a terror chief before he can continue to threaten us in ways that are uh, deeply uh, problematic. I, I would just also point out that there was a willingness on display from Democrats yesterday that was it was amazing that when they and they were definitely there were Democrats. You could tell from what they were saying from, you know, Trump is now getting wagged after he wagged the dog. You know, Lawrence O'Donnell, they were hoping for things to go really badly for America. I mean, there were Democrats who you can tell were just waiting to say, ha ha, I told you so after there were a whole lot of U.S. casualties from an Iranian counterstrike. That's what they were waiting for. They were they were hoping for that moment, which is. Really unsettling. It should be uh, very troubling to all of us. Um, you know, if I had known about the bin Laden raid, for example, before it happened, which obviously I didn't, but I'm saying if I had, I wouldn't have been sitting there like, well, I, I hope this doesn't work. And, you know, maybe we lose a few Blackhawks with our, our incredibly brave Navy SEALs, but at least that means Obama won't get reelected. I mean, that would have been a horrific, treasonous kind of thing to think. No, I want success for the United States, first and foremost, whatever that means. I want America and its people to do well. I want our soldiers to be safe. I want our missions to be successful. Democrats were sitting there, a lot of them, you can just tell from their responses, ooh, now we get to really, now we get to really stick it to Trump after the Iranians have shed a lot of American blood. This is where they are. And when that didn't happen, when that didn't happen, the response you had for many of them was, oh, well, it's because... The Iranians are so rational and reasonable. The Iranians are more reasonable and rational than Trump was. And Trump is. So thank you, Iran, for not doing, you know, the maximum that you could in terms of damage, showing our president real statesmanship. But that was a that was a sentiment. You can see it. It was all over social media. There there are people that really believe this. They really think that, you know, we should, the Iranians are, ra- people are, and the way they talk about it, of course, they're not as blatant about it. I'm telling you what their thought processes really are, but they'll say, oh, well, the Iranians are, they're rational actors and see, they were willing to, you know, we're lucky that they didn't try to do more. No, we're not lucky they didn't do more. The only reason the Iranians don't try to kill a thousand Americans tomorrow in a massive strike is because they know the next day we would kill every member of the IRGC we could find anywhere on a map, and then say, who's next? That's the only reason. It's not because of, you know, CNN anchors who really think that what they have to say at night is really important about the international community's opinions. It's not because of the UN. It's not because of bureaucrats in Brussels. It's none of that. It's because the United States military stands behind our government, stands behind this president of the United States as commander-in-chief, and says... You want, to, you want to play rough? We can play rough, too. As opposed to the Obama administration sending them cash, which we will get into later on, I can assure you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
I think they're overreacting, quite frankly. Go debate all you want to. I'm going to debate you. <laughs> Trust me, I'm going, to, I'm going to let people know that at this moment in time, to play this game with a poor War Powers Act, which I think is unconstitutional, is that whether you mean to or not, you're empowering the enemy. I know you don't mean to, but we live in the real world here. So debate all you want. This is a constitutional democracy, but get ready for a lively debate. And I think he's right. I, I just it felt like histrionics from from especially from Mike Lee coming out of there. Okay, well tell us tell us really what the problem is. Uh, is the president not supposed to be able to take action? I mean, why did why does Congress do this thing where they they give the they're giving? It's like they're consenting to the broad authority the president has to do whatever he or she theoretically uh, thinks needs to be done in this in this region or or for our national security. And then they complain when the president uses that authority. Well, then. What have you done in the first place? You know, to say that the authorization for the use of military force does not cover things like this would be to say that our military forces deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan cannot be defended at the discretion of the commander in chief because it might upset some particularly non-interventionist members of Congress. That's just not going to work. And Lindsey Graham, who I agree with sometimes, I don't agree with others, uh, is willing to say, look, I'm not even sure that the Congress has the authority, really. I mean, there, there is this is a a core separation of powers issue. If the president says we're under attack and the Congress says, no, you have to ask us for I mean, Congress has the power of the purse. Congress could defund the military. Right. I mean, there are things that could be done. But do they get to tell the president what to do? This also reminds me of how and we're going to talk about the uh, the border wall construction situation later and, and how that's stuck in the courts. You hear people say things, you know, they'll, they'll say that Trump is an anti-Semite, for example. And then you look at how I'm pretty sure there's like a town that's named after Trump in Israel. And and there's also the moving of the embassy that that president after president said they do. Then they all got, you know, they all got cold feet on it. And Trump did that, which was clearly what the Israeli government wanted him to do. Trump does not speak ill of the Israelis uh, defense of themselves and their interests. And Trump understands the Israelis are the good guys. Hamas are the bad guys. It's pretty straightforward. Doesn't mean that all Palestinians are bad people, but Hamas are the bad guys. Uh, Obama was more, you know, Hamas is a, you know, a reflection of oppressed people that you know, Israel, the settlements. You know, he had that faculty lounge leftist. Okay, I'm pro-Israel as long as I can get enough donations to be president in America, but I'm I'm not really pro-Israel when it comes to what's going on in that region of the world, or not as much as my predecessors had been. Um, and certainly the follow-on presidency of Trump is. Um, but, you know, you, you look at the separation. I mean, you look at the way that Trump has been willing to go to the courts, you know, hear from Congress on these issues. If he's an anti-Semite, he's terrible at it, as seen by moving the embassy. And if he's an authoritarian, which is another thing you keep hearing, and, oh, you know, we need to constrain Trump. This is a, this is a narrative out of, out of nothing. Did you see that? Did they pay attention to the speech Trump gave yesterday? It was a very measured, reasonable, entirely responsible speech. Here's really the problem a lot of them have with this. Trump showed what actual courage when it comes to the commander in chief is making a decision that your predecessors were not willing to make because you know that it's the right thing to do. And it is a risk, but it's a risk that you want to take under the circumstances. That is what an executive does. These other people in Congress, the Pelosi's, the Schumer's, the Mike Lee's, they're politicians. 
They want to convince you they're always doing the right thing. They're always doing what you want. And you know what that ends up happening? They do nothing. Just a lot of blather, a lot of bah, 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 bah. That's what you get from them. So, yeah, it might sound fancy, but it doesn't get us very far. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel ill a little bit um, because of of everything that is taking place. And I think every time I hear about, com- I hear of conversations around war, I find my myself um, being stricken with uh, PTSD. Um, and I I find peace knowing that I I serve. Um, with great advocates for for peace and uh, and people who have shown courage against war. Donald Trump doesn't want war. Democrats can keep pretending that he does, but that does not change the reality of what we are seeing and what the president has said. I want to bring in our friend Will Chamberlain. He's the publisher of Human Events. You can check out what they're doing over there at humanevents.com. Talked about this and also the border wall. Will, good to have you, my friend. Happy New Year. Yeah, happy new year. Great to be with you, Buck. I mean, what are you seeing now that we have the the aftermath? We, you know, we've we've done the battle damage assessment. We've seen the battle damage assessment from the Iranian counterstrike here after Qasem Soleimani. No U.S. casualties, and now we have the additional uh, tragic information: the Iranians blew a civilian airliner out of the sky, killing uh, almost two hundred people. So, what what are your takeaways from the way the Democrats and some Republicans? Well, let me start with the Republican side of this. What's with with Rand Paul and Mike Lee uh, throwing a fit about the War Powers Act at this point? I I haven't seen Trump say we're going to invade with 100,000 troops. Yeah, I I find it to be uh, like I generally am very sympathetic to the kind of non-interventionist take on war and the, the idea that Congress needs to be somewhat involved since they have the power to declare war. I don't think that that could justify opposing the Soleimani strike. It's very clear that Soleimani had been part of planning attacks on American embassy on American bases, American embassies. I think the very point of having an energetic executive, as Alexander Hamilton put it, is to have somebody that can respond to threats and, you know, essentially the targeting of our soldiers. Um, Now, I mean, was there an imminent terrorist attack that was going to kill thousands of people? I don't think so. But I don't I, I think just under the existing AUMF and the fact that this guy had had and continued to plan attacks on American soldiers in Iraq seems like perfectly good justification to take him out. I also think that I, I would want to know what a what would the, the you know, they're talking about passing some some kind of a resolution or something. What is the demand going to be that the president? I, I suppose it would be that the president goes to Congress before he declares war or, or, you know, declares war with Iran. And uh, where is that coming from? I haven't heard the president say anything about declaring war in Iran. Right. I mean, I, I've seen no reason why he would at this point. Uh, it strikes me as something of a dead letter. I mean, like, so I, I talked about how, I mean, the Iranian move was not to use like an old dueling term, but what they what they called a delope in duels when people didn't want to actually duel but wanted to save face, they would shoot into the air just above the other duelist. But so in a way that they would recognize it. Like when they, you know, I'm confident that Iran, despite having a weak military, does have the ability to kill some American servicemen if it tried. And so its failure to do so suggests they didn't want a war. Trump de-escalated. So, like, why? I I don't know what people think is coming now. I think it's pretty clear that this is already on the track to de-escalation. And so the worry about Trump declaring war seems kind of 
facile. Just to dig into your very interesting dueling analogy for a second, didn't uh, didn't yeah. Hamilton do that and Burr shot him anyway? Yep, exactly. There's, yeah. there's always a risk to that strategy, which is that the other guy won't recognize it as such, or that the other guy is wants to hit you anyway. Um, so it's, it's very it's a very risky strategy. Um, but you understand why Iran took it if you think about it, because. I mean, Iran, this is an honor culture. Iran is humiliated by the, the death of the second most powerful person of the country. And it's kind of hard to see them doing absolutely nothing about it. But on the same, it's at the same time, they really can't do anything more without risking, you know, just a, a sort of retaliatory attack on the United States that would be completely intolerable. So this is what they did. I feel like there's one part of this also that is getting lost, and that is the Trump base, uh, of which, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of Trump base in a sense. I, I've supported the president, mm -hmm. and I support him more and more with each passing month because I think he's doing an excellent job. Um, they don't want war with Iran. I mean, I, this is, I, I do think there are some people, and I mentioned Bolton before, there's some national security apparatus folks. There are, you know, there's some neocons still writing for, you know, editorial pages at some places. But I think that Trump recognizes not only would war with Iran, not only does he not want a war with Iran, but that war with Iran would be disastrous for the country and disastrous for his reelection, because I don't think the base is with him at all. I don't think Trump voters want a war with Iran. I think he knows that. Right. I, I think the Trump base is basically Jacksonian, to borrow from uh, a Walter Russell Meade. You know, we're, we're, the Trump base basically wants to live and let live, doesn't like foreign intervention. But, and there's a big but, if they feel like there's a serious threat or if they feel like someone is flagrantly disrespecting them and, and provoking them, then they want to punish that brutally. Like, you know, that's, that's the sort of Jacksonian impulse. And I think Trump's foreign policy is the best example of that. You know, the same Trump base that was really excited to be leaving Iraq and, and the end, seeing an end to regime change wars were the same people that were chanting for bombing ISIS into the Stone Age. It's the same group of people. And I think rec understanding that that's, that's a consistent it's not it's not contradictory. It really is a consistent way of looking at foreign policy, which is don't mess with us. It's, we're not trying to reconstruct the world in our image, but we will not tolerate things like having you attack our embassy. Now, I wanted to transition us to what I think is, is a very, you know, underreported uh, part of not just Trump's reelection, um, but of, of his domestic policy challenges and, and the need for follow through. And that is on the on the on the wall. We all remember build the wall. We all remember. Right. Uh, people that that were chanting that they wanted a wall when Trump was running for president. We had the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, rule just uh, yesterday that they've put a stay on a district court injunction. The district court had said that they couldn't that they could not use three point six billion dollars of military funds for the construction of the wall. This now removes right. that prohibition. I mean, what what do you think was the the reasoning behind this decision? And and will are we actually going to see Trump building this section of wall? So uh, I think this follows on from a decision. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I think it was in August. Uh, a Supreme, the Supreme Court actually put a stay on a similar injunction in a similar case in California, right? I think it was Sierra Club versus California that, or Sierra Club versus Trump. And they were already making a similar argument that, you know, because they were representing people who had interests along the border, like an environmental group or landowners or whatever, um, and they nominally would be injured by the building of a wall on their property. Therefore, the Trump administration shouldn't be able to move money around inside the Department of Defense to build that wall because that that funding move was illegal. And basically, the Supreme Court strongly hinted that random landowners on the U.S.-Mexico border don't have the right to challenge 
funding reallocations of the Department of Defense. That's the basic that was the basic sort of underlying it, the Supreme Court didn't explicitly rule that, but it strongly hinted at it in the nature of its ruling. And so I think basically what happened in the Fifth Circuit is, is sort of a following, essentially following along, anticipating that when the Supreme Court finally makes a decision here, it's going to say, look, like if you're a landowner, it's, it's ridiculous to have a court system where random landowners can challenge what is just an internal funding squabble at DOD. Like that, that doesn't make sense. If you know you're not getting enough money for if your land is taken from you in terms of eminent domain, maybe it makes sense for you to go to court. If you're personally injured by the, you know, if you're challenging whether or not it was lawful to even build the wall in the first place, fine. But you don't get to mess around with DOD funds. That doesn't make any sense. So I think that that's what's underlying the Fifth Circuit decision, and it, it shows that Trump is very likely to not face similar problems with this particular type of challenge in the future. And I just want to know, what do you think about? And the administration has got 90 miles of what essentially is enhanced fencing or, or wall built. They want to get 450 miles built of new, actual new wall where there had not been. And people, you know, it's a fence. It's not a wall, but it's a very advanced fence. I've been there. I've seen it. Um, they want to get that built by the end of the year. Do you think, I mean, how, how do you gauge the importance of this as a promise kept for Trump? And, and how also would you assess the likelihood that, we get close to that 450 number. I mean, I think at the end, the, the important thing is that Trump is seen to be doing everything within his lawful power to get it built. I think that's the that's the ultimate test. And I think the base will recognize that by declaring a national emergency and fighting it really hard in the courts, I think they'll give him credit for doing what he could. The real problem here is that we have these random district court judges issuing lawless nationwide injunctions at a rate we've never before seen. Like uh, Bill Barr gave a great speech to the Federal Society where he said that the Trump administration in just two years has faced 40 nationwide injunctions stopping various policy initiatives by the executive branch. That was done maybe five times in the entire Obama administration and almost never before that. So, you know, basically what's happening is a single district court judge has more power than any other judge in the country, more power than the Supreme Court, because they have the power to independently shut down a, a, an administration policy. And there's, there's hundreds of those judges. It's, it's an absurd sort of situation that we find ourselves in. And, and really the ultimate solution, I think, is the Supreme Court really, really restricting the use of, of these nationwide injunctions. Well, I totally agree. We actually talked about that uh, a bit on the show. And uh, Barr, I think, I, I'm always telling everybody, you know how effective he is by how much they hate him on the left, which is, which is always, oh, yeah. that's the best sign that you can see that this guy knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. No, he's I mean, he's the all star. I mean, human events named him the man of the year. I think that I mean, his intervention in the Mueller report um, really just put an end to that absolute nonsense. And I mean, he's just he's in, he's both brilliant and incredibly effective and, and is also doesn't take the left guff. Right. There, there's this kind of habit of sort of the establishment types who, you know, one mile, while they might have the talent to deal with the left, they don't have the inclination to bar as a bulldog. Yeah, I think so. And but if, if Trump doesn't get to the. The, look, if he can't really credibly say that the wall has been built and is being built, is it enough to say, give me four more years and I'll do it? I mean, I, I think so. I like, you know, after a week like this, honestly, I, I look at what Trump just did with Soleimani as one of the single most effective foreign policy moves that I can recall. I, I mean, in terms of, you know, effectively achieving the goal of deterring future aggression and getting rid of a terrorist with no American casualties. It's, it's a, it's a masterstroke. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of other things Trump's doing well. The economy is just killing it. 
Um, I mean, I think it would be better, obviously, if Wall were built, but I think I think ultimately his voters will understand that he really is trying hard. He's, this isn't fake. He's just been thwarted by a bunch of lawless courts and isn't going to disobey them in turn. So I, th- I think that I, I think the base will forgive him on this. Point. What do you got coming up today on humanevents.com? So we got a very good article from uh, a guy named Jack Buckby, and he, I mean, he's he's making a really interesting case about like what happens when you let uh, a you know, essentially a nationalist agenda get corrupted by racists. So we're, I mean, it's sort of a cautionary tale about what happened in England. And I think it's applicable today. And I think it's a pretty persuasive piece because it comes from his own personal experience as a former member of the BNP who's now kind of seen the error of his ways. Will Chamberlain, everybody, humanevents.com. Will, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. There was one small thing you were saying, what's some good news? This is a tiny thing that I noticed. Uh, you remember Richard Spencer? He's basically the organizer of Unite the Right, Lunatic. the white nationalist group that was marching in Charlottesville. It was all in for Trump. Not anymore. Here's his quote. He tweeted last night, I deeply regret voting for and promoting Donald Trump in 2016. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I mean, that's, that's good. That's interesting. Do you know why? Well, it because Trump, like I said yesterday, away. Trump ran on not invading and not being a war. That's what I'm talking about. Well, here we have Joy Behar, who is citing a white nationalist because she agrees with him that Trump's about to drag us into war. No. No, do not cite the white nationalist Richard uh, Richard Spencer uh, to try to own Trump. Don't do it, view, the view, whatever. Don't do it. But here we are. Oh, my gosh. Anything, anything to get a, you know, just if, if it can be used as a Trump is bad, people just, it's a compulsion. They can't help themselves. You know, Richard, Richard Spencer, who was also uh, on, they had a clip of him on Jake Tapper's show, too. I mean, they, they'll use these individuals, these odious people, they'll use them for their own purposes as long as those purposes align with taking a, you know, taking a cheap shot at, at President Trump. Um it's just it's just flatly not true. I mean, people kept saying, oh, my gosh, we're going to be in this whole protracted conflict with Iran. Now we actually have what seems like, an ex, you know, the opening of a new era of relations with Iran where they understand we're not messing around anymore. And like now, you know, really, Trump has told the Iranians the big boys are in charge now. OK, this administration is not messing around. We're not playing games. So you want to you want to be treated like a country that can actually sit at the table with with real players or you want to continue your rinky dink nonsense. And, you know, oh, but that means we're going to war with Iran, war with Iran. Really, if, if they're such warmongers, and I mean, if the Trump administration are such warmongers, why is Trump the one who's always trying to pull troops out of Syria? And everyone's, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Trump's the one who's always telling the national security apparatus, including generals, many of whom have been completely wrong on what's going on in Afghanistan. The chan- and, and, and there's really credible accusations now they're misleading the public that there are there are you know four star three star generals who are misleading the public about the truth of our stability operations in Afghanistan and you know we sit around we say okay well hold on a second Trump is the one who's always saying we're not going to do this we're not you know let's not leave troops there let's pull troops out uh you know when we're going to you know his approach is when we're going we're going to go in hard we're going to mess we're going to mess up the bad guys 
And we're not going to sit around and play games about, oh, but we don't want to be too mean to ISIS. No, air campaign all in. Back the Kurds, wipe out ISIS, get them done. But then we're not going to stay in new stability operations. We don't want to have a long protracted military occupation of Syria. We don't want to continue an endless and honestly fruitless occupation of Afghanistan. And we don't even really want to do it in Iraq either. Although it's a little bit of a different situation there because of the regional instability issue with the Islamic State next door or you know the remnants of the Islamic State next door. And yet we're always being warned that Trump wants a war with Iran. In fact, if you step back and look at what has really been happening, Trump is trying to get us not into wars, to end wars. And people are pushing back on him for trying to do that, including a lot of Republicans, a lot of people on the right. But now with Iran, it's, oh, he must want, I mean, the, the president, it would be insane. And people like me, I mean, I will tell you this right now. Unless the Iranians, look, the Iranians do get a vote in this, and I, I understand that. I mean, if, you know, God forbid, but if, you know, the Iranians went full on, you know, psycho-terrorist, and which they've done in the past, but they started deploying suicide bombers into, uh, you know, civilian areas and going after U.S. targets abroad or here, and they kill a lot of people, yeah, I mean, then we, then we but, th- but then they've, they've brought us into a war, and we can't operate from the from the psychology of oh we can't push back on iranians in other areas because then they may take an action that will force us to go to war with them because any any rogue state any rogue nation can decide at any point in time that they're going to force you to go to war with them by their actions against you Uh, but that trump is looking for a war is just not supported by the facts i mean and the view i mean if you're going to the view to get your foreign policy you know you might as well go to um, you know, my man Jesse Kelly to get your advice on eating keto, <laughs> which if you've ever seen his uh, Twitter feed, his version of keto is like a Philly cheesesteak with French fries. And uh, I'm like, that's not really, I don't think that counts as keto, but Jesse's got a whole thing going there. But I think he is going to owe me, I think he is going to owe me a steak. We're going to talk about Pelosi. Remember, we have this bet. Is Pelosi going to transmit the articles of impeachment? So far, she has held back on that. A lot of focus as to or on the issue of what's coming next and whether she's going to actually transmit these articles. So uh, we will dive into that together. Plus, we get my my uh, my buddy David Harsani will be joining us in a little bit as well to weigh in on some things Iran, some things Pelosi. Oh, my. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. He is openly seeking uh, foreign interference in the 2020 election, and he poses a continuing threat to our national security and to the integrity of our elections, to, to our democratic system itself. It's a clear and present danger, I think, to our democracy. And the timing is really driven by the urgency, and that is... National security issue. Yes. It's about urgency. It is urgent. It is urgent. There's a sense of urgency. Nothing could be more urgent. 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 Waiting for Pelosi. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who is holding back those articles of impeachment and holding back the articles. Saying she is not going to move at this point. She's sort of losing leverage here. Hurry up and wait. That's the Pelosi grand strategy on on impeachment at this point. Um, We get a lot of a lot. There are a lot of folks the same way that Pelosi has been transformed from the person she is into almost some kind of like folk hero for the uh, for the Democrats, um, you know, someone who is 
is is lauded by them across the board. You've seen that with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, too, where adults seem to Democrat leftist adults think it's normal to gush about how awesome Ruth Bader Ginsburg's like workouts are or something. I mean, guys, she's like a really, you know, uh, I hope she is, is doing great, but she's a really old lady. OK, what, what are we? We're talking about how she can plank or something. Who cares? It's just it's bizarre. And there's this there's the cult. They've created a cult of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There's something of a of a Pelosi, the grand strategist cult as well among Democrats, because who else do they really have? AOC. I mean, you know, who's I know she's a freshman, but you know, who's the the larger than life figure in the Democratic Party that gives them someone to to rally around who can go toe to toe with Republicans like Trump, who are fighters, and Republicans like McConnell, who are, you know, McConnell is a strategist. He is a savvy player. And uh, the, you have the mythology around Pelosi that she has come up with all these great, as I said before, I think she's cunning. I think she has a will to power. I think she's ruthless. Ruthless and cunning will get you very far in life. You know, Saddam Hussein, ruthless and cunning. I mean, you, know, you look at a lot of people who've gotten a tremendous amount of power. I mentioned Stalin before. You go down a list. If you're going to do whatever. People in media. I know people in media, ruthless and cunning, and they've done very well. And some people will say on the right and on the left, and they'll say, oh, so-and-so is such a nice guy. And I'm like, no, actually, not not true. But, yeah, maybe names names to name another time. But this is, you know, if you're willing to just burn anyone you have to, Tear down anyone else you have to along the way. Do whatever you got to do to get where you're going to go. The bad guys do win sometimes, right? This is the world that we live in, and Pelosi is able to generate a whole lot of, of at least perception of, of power among her own, and I guess to wield it too, if we're going to be fair, among the Democrats. Um, and we have a, an example, though, of why am I calling this mythology? I mean, where am I, where am I taking this from? It is no surprise when you hear... Democrats criticizing President Trump for watching particularly Fox News and saying that he gets his strategic thought processes from Fox News, that he he learns about, you know, what he wants to do from Fox News, especially they really hate it when they say that he's watching Fox and Friends and like Fox and Friends is running America. Democrats lose their minds over this. And this is part of the narrative that Trump doesn't read books, that he's not smart and, you know, that Fox News is running the country. This is what Democrats say. And. Time Magazine, which is running, I mean, Time Magazine is, is essentially a publication that should be considered a publication of the DNC. I mean, it's a Democrat propaganda organ. And Time Magazine put out a piece, and this is like yesterday, you know, I had, I had Politico Magazine keeps calling me and calling me and calling me. They want me to comment on some stuff. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, no, sorry, libs. I'm not, I don't want to talk to you. Stop, stop calling me. They don't want to debate me. They just want to, like, hound me with questions about different things. Not having to do with me, by the way. No. No interest. I, I'm not going to help the libs in their mission of running the propaganda. I'm not going to assist them in their machinations, especially if it involves any fellow conservatives, which, you know, I have my problems with plenty of people in conservative media, although I'm actually quite nice and, and helpful to really everybody in this process of uh, op, uh, of opposing the leftist socialists, um, but I will not. I will not help the. You know, we are wartime conservatives. I will not help the other side against our people, even against the ones who are huge jerks, which there are a lot of, um, and they tend to be uh, some of the some of the better known and some of the, well, conversations. Like I said, for another time, uh, but Time Magazine is a bunch of Democrats and Speaker Pelosi. 
they say. Remember, Speaker Pelosi, master strategist, brilliant. What did she? She referred herself once, I think, as a uh, a, mas- a master legislator or, a, you know, a master, something like that. Like, she's she's incredibly skilled in the arts of wielding political power. Turns out that she got the idea to withhold these articles of impeachment. This is according to Time Magazine. This isn't some right-wing thing. From watching CNN. Yeah, that's right. She was watching CNN, which has a lot of very dumb people on TV every day. And she was watching specifically John Dean, who I think is the architect of the Watergate cover-up of memory serves. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, she got her game plan for this from watching John Dean on CNN. No wonder. I've been sitting around like, oh, Pelosi must have a, ah, Pelosi's not that smart. Ah, I'll tell you the truth. She's not that smart. It's okay. Just do whatever she has to do. Shameless. Shameless and cunning, but not, not brilliant at all. And, you know, remember, she's the one who, you know, we have to pass Obamacare to see what's in it, you know. Uh, it's amazing. She was watching CNN, and that's where this came up. But that just also shows you how ill thought out this whole thing was. Because I think even for Pelosi, I mean, that's just that's just reckless, man. That's crazy. You're going to watch these buffoons over on on Zucker TV. You're going to watch them and decide what you, as the Speaker of the House, the third in line for the presidency, this is your your you're going to be held accountable for the decisions that are made in this process. You're going to believe John Dean on CNN. But I think that on the one hand, it shows you that Pelosi is not this, you know, master, a brilliant tactician. You know, she's not like the Patton of Congress or, you know, whomever. I wonder if people really were to say, who's the best, who's the most tactically impressive general of all time? It'd be interesting to see how people came up with that. I think there is a case he made that uh, Hernan Cortez pulled off the most improbable military conquest in all history. I think I think you could make that case pretty strongly. But if you're talking about strategic and tactical genius from a military commander throughout all history, it'd be interesting to compile a list of who would be at the very top. Pelosi, I do not think, is somebody who you would put at the list of or on the list of those who have tremendous vision in this way. Um, and it's that's true. Then there's also... But what else was she really, you know, what else was she really going to do in this circumstance? What was the uh, what was the alternative here? They got a weak case. It's not what it was supposed to be. Uh, Kevin McCarthy understands this. Producer Mark, please play clip eight when you get a moment. Make the delay by the speaker is just another example of how weak her case is. The idea that she had to rush us, that she had to get it because it was so imperative that it move forward, the idea that she wouldn't move it forward just shows the weakness of the case and, more importantly, the no need for it. I think our focus should be other places, and we've been giving that example. Unfortunately, as she told us when she was first sworn into office, they would govern differently. She told us she had to hurry through impeachment because this year was going to be different. It continues to show the only agenda they have is impeachment, and America needs something different. I thought this was great. Representative Adam Smith, not to be confused with the Wealth of Nations guy. He's been dead for a long time. Um, Representative Adam Smith initially said that he thought it was time. He publicly said, you know, I think it's time for Pelosi to. And there are others as well who have been breaking with Pelosi on this issue 
um, saying that uh, what's uh, Dianne Feinstein? You know, there are some Democrats. Some of them are pretty prominent Democrats who have said, all right, the games have got to stop here. It's time to transmit. Oh, but Pelosi doesn't like that. This was great. Adam, Adam Smith, within hours of saying publicly, it's time for Pelosi to send over the articles of impeachment to the Senate for this trial. He tweeted this out. Democrat Adam Smith. I misspoke this morning. I do believe we should do everything we can to force the Senate to have a fair trial. If the speaker believes that holding on to the articles for a longer time will help force a fair trial in the Senate, then I wholeheartedly support that decision. Wow. This is like a hostage video via tweet. I don't know what Pelosi told this guy or what the message was, but it was, you know, you lock it up. Uh, it was, you better, you better fall in line, young man. That was what Pelosi said to this guy. This was, a, this was a walk back and a begging for forgiveness at the same time. It was pretty amazing to see how that went down. Um, they are going to have to transmit these things eventually, though. I, I just don't see how they can continue to hold on to this. Um, there are those who are saying Pelosi's plan, which was clear all along, was just to never give the president the ability to be exonerated as he would be in the Senate. That's what's going to happen, we know, because this is all a political process. Democrats have made it such. What's the crime? What's the crime exactly? I'm just, I'm going to ask you that. We haven't talked about this in a little while. Why is the president of the United States being impeached? Do you even remember? Does anyone, I, I don't know, I'm not saying that you should remember. But why, why, what's the thing that he did? Um, abuse of power and obstruction. If you believe the president's obstructing by going to the courts, then you're an imbecile. So a lot of Democrats are very stupid. And abuse of power? Wow. You could have made this case about pretty much any president in the, uh, if you were in the political opposition. But that's what Democrats have done. They have lowered the bar on this and made it so that we can't be, we can't be adults with our constitution anymore, you know? A republic, if you can keep it. Democrats are saying, nah, we're not sure we want to keep it. Too important to own the bad orange man. That's priority number one. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Is it time, Chairman? I think it is. I mean, I understand what the speaker is trying to do, um, basically trying to use the leverage of that to work with Democratic and Republican senators to try to get a reasonable trial, a trial that would actually you know, show evidence, bring out witnesses. But at the end of the day, just like we, we control it in the House, Mitch McConnell controls it in the Senate. Um, I don't I think it was perfectly um, advisable for the speaker to try to leverage that to get a better deal. At this point, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And yes, I, I think it is time to send. Uh, the impeachment to the Senate and let Mitch McConnell be responsible uh, for the fairness of the trial. He ultimately is. Well, that lasted for like two hours. <laughs> that lasted for like two hours. Uh, that did not stay. That was Adam Smith there saying, and I told you before, he had to tweet out right after that. I'm sorry, Pelosi. Don't be mean to me. Oh, Democrats. David Harsanyi is with us now. He's our buddy. He writes for National Review. He has many thoughts on many things. Mr. Harsanyi, great to have you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, man. What do you think about? First of all, did, did you catch this little Adam Smith turnaround? I thought it was great. Just shows there's, there's like a schizophrenia with the Democrats now on like, are we going to be reasonable about this? Is enough enough? Oh, no, it's whatever Nancy Pelosi says. Yeah, his tweet was hilarious. I'm, it starts off, I misspoke this morning. <laughs> like, it seems pretty clear and coherent, and it seemed like a very well thought out, you know, uh, thing that he said for, you know, it's, it's not like he used a word improperly or something of that nature so that made me laugh but yeah i mean 
listen, I think they all know this is ridiculous. My, my working theory on all of this is that Nancy Pelosi saw that impeachment wasn't working out. So really, she didn't know what to do. So she's trying to essentially paint the Senate as an unfair place to have this trial. But, you know, when your whole motivating factor was to save the world from Donald Trump very quickly and push, you know, have your own partisan House hearings and rush everything and call it an emergency and then stop, it just kind of decimates their whole case. What do you think she's going to do? I mean, I'm not even sure that she knows what she's going to do, so I'm putting you in kind of an impossible position, but kind of war game it out from your perspective. How do you think this goes? Well, it goes poorly for her either way, I think, because either she looks like she's given in to McConnell and giving, you know, handing them over, or she's not where she looks like the whole, you know, she looks sort of like a fraud. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think that it's going to change the landscape of the, uh, you know, the electorate or anything like that. But, I mean, she's supposed to be this wily, you know, cunning political operative who knows everything that's going on and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, I think that's all horse manure, personally. I I don't buy it. I was just talking about this before you came on. We didn't coordinate this beforehand. I think people, I think it's kind of like when people talk about how you know uh, RBG could like could like bench more than me and beat me in a foot race. It's like no guys, like let's stop being weird about this. It reminds me. And this is a weird weird off ramp here, but it reminds me of like Brad Pitt in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he fights Bruce Lee and like throws him around. It's like everyone thinks just because you're in a situation where you get to act like a superhero and act like you're in charge doesn't mean that you actually have all the abilities that that people sort of project onto you and i don't think nancy pelosi i think nancy pelosi has been generally lucky i don't think she's i don't think she's you know i don't think she's like a terrible speaker i think she's you know probably average and uh, i think it shows now and so she does end up transmitting this should the senate this was the the big question i was dealing with on the outnumbered couch whatever a day or two ago where you know do you think that republicans should take the ball and run with it or should they just spike it right away how do you mean with Trump. Yeah, like, like, like should, they, should they just shut it down, be like, this is a joke, we're not even going to wait for this? Or should they, you know, call the witnesses that they want and, like, make a spectacle of, you know, Hunter Biden? And, you know, there's all this different strategy of, of, what, of how Mitch McConnell in the Senate running this trial, what he should do. I have them two minds. I mean, I think ideally I'd wish that they would do a fair, you know, take a fair look, call people they want to call and do all of that. But, you know, the, 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 the real in the real world, you have a, a very partisan process going on. I'm not sure why Republicans should act in a way uh, that sort of puts them, you know, you know, behind politically simply because they're being more idealistic. So in the end, I think they should act like Democrats and just, you know, could just rush it through. I mean, really, the president just wants to say these words. I was exonerated by the Senate, you know, and uh, that's going to be a political victory for him. Yeah, so I, I, I think I think shut it down is, is my is my inclination. I, I agree. There's a case he made for either side, which is why Republicans are going back and forth. But, you know, it, it really felt like a box checking exercise from Pelosi's side. Oh, he was impeached. I feel like Republicans should respond in kind. OK. Oh, he was exonerated. Great. Well, here, here's why I think it, it would be okay as well for them to do that, you know, to, to just rush it through, is because they took the whole House impeachment hearings, two of them were about bribery and extortion and, and obstruction of justice, none of which are in the impeachment article. So essentially what they wanted to do is just send over this Trump is bad document, and then they want the Republicans to treat it seriously. Well, if it was a serious impeachment, they would have made a case for those specific uh, instances of wrongdoing, as they did in the Clinton trial, where they had, I forgot what it was, 12, 11, very specific potential crimes. And they didn't do that. So I, I don't know why they should treat it, you know, more serious as a more serious document than it is. Or, 
Yeah, I, I think Harder. that anyone who's looking at this honestly at this point would have to come away saying that this has been, at least they're in a, they're in a, a difficult position now, the Democrats, because this has been a blunder. But speaking of blunders, Democrats still claim that what we've done in Iran is. We're going to talk to David about that in just a second. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex, and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I just want to fact check also the $150 billion that the president suggested helped pay for the missiles that were launched last night. You already fact checked that. Uh, the fact is that's another lie. The $150 billion, as you pointed out, was Iranian money that was unfrozen as a result of the nuclear deal, and they have been complying with the nuclear deal. That's not America giving uh, Iran $150 billion, uh, quite the contrary. And Iran has had these sophisticated missiles. They've been developing their capacity for many, many years. To say that um, that money funded the attack uh, on our uh, personnel and on our base is just the most disgraceful kind of lie of the sort that, unfortunately, President Trump tells every day. Ooh, former Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice claiming that uh, it was the Iranians' money. Well, our man David Harsanyi has a thing or two to say about this. He's a senior writer at National Review. He's back with us. David, um, I'm just going to hand this one to you. Susan Rice says, we didn't give them money. The money we gave them was already their money. Yeah. Well, somehow every president since Jimmy Carter was able not to hand that money over because it wasn't their money. We didn't owe them any money. For one thing, of course, that money belonged to the Shah's government, not to the revolutionary uh, government that took over afterwards. Uh, but, but setting that aside, you know, the, these, the, these disputes over payment were in front of a court. We had never agreed to give them this money before because it was in dispute. They, in fact, there's a law, and I forget the name of it, but it was passed in 2000, that stipulates that the president would only unfreeze any of this money if the Iranians promised to pay back or did pay back all the money they owed American citizens and the American government. We have a counterclaim for $817 million right now in front of that court. The Iranians are never going to give us a penny. We didn't owe them anything. That's just... Uh, it's just that the Obama administration decided that they wanted to unfreeze all that money, which went, in, which John Kerry admitted, some of it probably went to terrorism. We know it did. Dollars are fungible, yeah. Donald Trump is probably wrong that that ballistic missile that hit that specific missile was not funded by that money. But we would never uh, talk about uh, fungible dollars in that way in any other instance, except if it's Donald Trump and we want to pretend he's lying about everything. And I also have to note that the... Uh, of the various ways that the Iran echo chamber was really it was really a, a stunning situation under the Obama administration. Not was I, is right. Yeah, well, it still is. Continues this day. <laughs> but but the I, I remember I was on CNN. It was actually Anderson Cooper's show, but it was being hosted by that that Berman dude from the morning show. And it was me and, and CNN's foreign policy experts. And I think Gurgling Gurgan was one of them, but I don't even remember now. And, and some other person who is an idiot that they think is smart, who's supposed to know about foreign policy. And this was on the day that there had been the four hostages released and the pallets of cash delivered to them. Right. And I was like, this is a this is a this is a transaction where the Obama administration is literally delivering money to pay for the release of hostages. Like, that's what this is. And they were like, no, it's not. This is just a coincidence. And I was like, at what point can you not actually pretend to be this stupid, CNN? It's like you're living in crazy town when people say that to you. 
from 1979 till the day that day as a transaction for you know the day four hostages were released the money was never unfrozen never put on pallets in smaller denominations of european currency and sent to the iranians i mean the notion that that wasn't a, a ransom payment is, is is hilarious, and no rational person can actually believe that. I'm just, no. yeah, I just, I just gotta tell you, I, I will never forget that. That I'm sitting there, and they're like, oh, "I'm sorry, Buck, we have two fantastic CNN national security experts who do not think it's a ransom payment." And I was just like, "I don't know if you guys are idiots or liars or both, but this is insane. <laughs> this is the craziest thing I've ever seen." <laughs> What's this scary is, is that they, they they are considered experts, and that what's scary is that these were the people that, like Susan Rice, who went out, we know lied to the American people about numerous things, is out there treated as some kind of expert. And Ben Rhodes is on MSNBC talking about this, who laughed, laughed at the media and how gullible they were. Yeah, I, I remember the line was more or less, and by the way, he's not wrong about this, that you know, foreign policy reporters for all these big, uh, particularly for all these big websites, you know, left-wing websites, are 25, 26-year-old kids who don't know anything about foreign policy. So and it's and it's do you want to be and look this is a this is a bigger a broader indictment I think of the way journalism really works it's do you want to be invited to the like Obama Ben Rhodes you know sit down we're not with Obama but with Ben Rhodes on behalf of the administration spoon feeding you what the so-called smart people are supposed to say or do right, you want to be excluded get, from that Right you don't get to be on MSNBC or CNN or any of the other places if you're not towing that sort of line you're not writing for Esquire and you're not writing for GQ and you're not writing for you know BuzzFeed or Daily Beast or anyone else if you don't toe that line and act like you know Iran is the victim here basically i mean it is it is horrifying the you know Soleimani was behind the killing of 600 Americans, and we and, and the American media spent about five minutes talking about that. They spent more time fact-checking the statement by Donald Trump, which is true, um, than they had on that story. Or in fact, and always, you know what makes me laugh as well is that they say, oh, it's not 150 uh, billion, you know, it's only 50 billion, whatever. We would know if you would actually report on it. Why don't you go find out how much money it was so we can know? You never reported on that story other than one person at the Wall Street Journal. So. Anyway, it's it's really just it's it's just disgusting, honestly. And what do you think is is gonna you know when we have now this this moment after people were all saying you know I, I give Ian Bremmer credit for example who's a, who's a Democrat but he's a smart Democrat uh, you know he's like look this is a win this Qasem Soleimani thing as of right now is a win for Trump and anyone who says otherwise is kind of deluding themselves. But this is this is really, I think, a circumstance where there Democrats were rooting for terrible things to happen in a way that was deeply unseemly. <laughs> I really think that's what was happening. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say that, but it felt like it, at least from the more sort of, you know, <laughs> aggressive anti-Trump types that they were hoping for that. But listen, I, I, I just don't see how anyone can say that this situation didn't work out in our favor. Um the deterrent is there now, obviously, and uh, hopefully remains. Uh, just because we're not, just because you weren't reporting, not you, but just because you weren't reporting on the deaths of American soldiers and the things that were going on, and, and and the things Iran was doing to circumvent the Iran deal and so on, doesn't mean it wasn't happening, and it was. 
And uh, I think that we saw the, yesterday with those, those missiles missed everything important that Donald Trump, that they're nervous now about the United States, and they should be. So, you know, there are a few people at the Brookings Institute and elsewhere who admit this, but there's, you know, everyone's opinions on everything are driven by Trump, and it makes them blind, and it makes them say very stupid things quite often. Yes, that is absolutely the case. I'd agree with that. And uh, before we let you go, David, um, I, I want to transition to get into some political stuff in a second on on the show, but... Uh, I feel like there's there's this there's this separation where people think of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Elizabeth Warren is supposed to be so much smarter than Bernie Sanders. Is she though? <laughs> I, mean, I put this out. You know, this she's supposed to be the sort of more policy wonk and everything else. But why? Because she teaches at Harvard. We all know how that happened. I mean, why is she so much smarter? I don't think she's smarter. I mean, I, I don't think people are dumb. I just think they're wrong about everything in, a, in very serious ways. Um, I guess she's less. I guess they view her as more a realistic option, and that makes her smarter maybe in a way, though I don't know that that's true either. I think Democrats or many Democrats are more like and get excited about Bernie Sanders in ways they would never get excited about Elizabeth Warren. So I, I don't know. Do you have a, is there a serious, do you have a serious concern, or I don't know what you, if you call it a concern, but I mean, how, how seriously do you take the possibility of Bernie Sanders really being the nominee at least? I take it very seriously, actually. Um, I know Biden's up there, and I, I probably he will pull through and be the candidate. But uh, you know, he's, he's a mess, and he's never been a good politician. You know, people forget that. So anything can happen. He can say something incredibly stupid tomorrow, and it can maybe sink his candidacy. And then who's going to win? I don't know. But I think Bernie could, and then I think Bernie could become president. I know. I don't think he will, for, you know, but he could. I mean, you know, he's going to win New York. He's going to win California. He's going to win all those usual states because Democrats are going to vote for a Democrat, even if he's a communist. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> if we had to pull a soundbite from our son today, Democrats will vote for a Democrat, even if he's yeah, a communist. I used to, I've been calling Democrats communists forever as a joke, and now it's like I actually have to transition. Oh, wait, no, hold on, because I'm, I'm, I'm part of the group here. By the way, I've always hated calling them liberals because I think that's an intentional misnomer and that, that Absolutely. We, should, yeah, we shouldn't do that. I mean, it's an, an, an it's a an incorrect description of, of their political system, their political beliefs. But I, I've been calling them so, I mean, how are the Democrats not, how is the Democratic Party not socialist these days, by along the lines European of European standards. socialists? Yeah, by European standards right now, they are. I mean, they don't want to take the means of production tomorrow, but, I mean, that's where we're headed. And another quick thing, if I can, you know, they call themselves Democratic Socialists. Well, yeah, because you're in a democratic country, you can't take over through a coup. So, of course, you're a Democratic Socialist now. You know, it's three generations in that that's going to probably change, and it always does in real socialism. Very interesting. David, if you decide to come back and we'll talk more about this, I, I want to dig into this more because I do think the Democratic Party has transitioned to Socialist Party, but we've we've kept David. David has like a life and a family and, and professional obligations, so we have to let him go do those things now. Thank you. Thanks, David. David Arsani of National Review, everybody. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. By 2028, no new buildings, no new houses, zero car- without a zero carbon footprint. By 2030, uh, trucks, new, uh, light duty trucks and cars, zero carbon footprint. By 2035, all production of electricity, zero carbon footprint. We do three regulations. We can cut our carbon footprint by 70%. These people are nuts. You need to remember that. Zero carbon footprint by 2028. Uh, no new houses, no new buildings without a zero carbon footprint. I want to. I want to know. 
people who have a have a, a just a very basic understanding of economics and markets and how how stuff works. We have this concern, it's a real one, that there are housing shortages in cities, uh, particularly you know very large major metropolitan areas where you either are in government subsidized housing or you're in super expensive housing and it's very difficult to be somewhere in between. That's a real thing in places like New York and San Francisco. But is that because there's no market for housing for people who are making, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars a year? Or is it because the government makes it very, very expensive and hard and difficult for environmental reasons, for um, just, you know, regulatory, the regulatory impulse they have to zone areas and determine what goes where and what you can build and how tall you can build and, you know, what is really the problem? It's not that there's no market. It's not that people don't want to have houses to live in that they can afford that they like. It's that if you make it incredibly expensive and difficult to build housing, people don't do it. People decide to do other things with their capital. The, the Democrats, the socialists, uh, I really like that. Harsanyi uh, was, you know, he's coming along on, on the, buck, uh, the buck team there with these people are socialists. They just don't have the power yet to go full socialism, but they're socialists. There's really no question about it at this point. Elizabeth Warren gives you certainly a very good sense of that. Um, and that's why when she talks about how we're going to have a zero carbon footprint, uh, who's going to assess that? And what, what would that even mean? How is it possible to have a zero carbon footprint building? Well, what are they going to do? Any process of delivering the construction materials... Uh, the energy used to construct the building. I mean, zero carbon footprint, this is a crazy idea. Um, but there are other things that she says that are just either crazy ideas or flatly untrue. You can take your pick for which one it is. Here she is on um, how we're going to get to Medicare. Now, before I can even let her talk about Medicare for all, let's understand this. Medicare for all is not really Medicare. It's, in fact, more than Medicare, because Medicare has cost sharing, has pre, has um, uh, co-pays, uh, states kicking money. There's a whole lot that goes, and Medicare doesn't cover everything, as people who have it know. Um, and even that is to even Medicare with those restrictions is too expensive from a budgetary perspective. People take out twice what they pay in over the cycle of their uh, working years. And here is what Elizabeth Warren says about it. Nonetheless, play 21, please, sir. Let's talk for just a minute about full health care coverage for everyone. Part one, it is possible to offer full health care coverage, Medicare for all, for everyone, without costing middle class families one single dime. We just have to ask those at the top to pay more. Yep. And let me describe how they do it, just so you know. It's you increase the taxes on the top 1%. We can do that. On the big corporations like Amazon that are paying nothing, we can do that. And my personal favorite in this, how we get them to pay, is we actually crack down on the tax cheaters at the top. We can make trillions of dollars doing this. Ooh, get ready for it. That doesn't sound to some people that ominous at first, but going to unleash the IRS on you. That's what they're really going to do. You think it's going to stop at the 1%? Really? I'm old enough to remember when the Obama administration presided over an internal revenue service 
that as a matter of record, as stated by Lois Lerner herself publicly, was targeting for political purposes conservatives going into an election year, conservative groups that were trying to organize against the Obama administration, audit them, put them through hell, put them through nightmares. I remember meeting with a woman who was trying to pull together a Tea Party group and, and interviewing her. And, you know, they came to her home, they came to her office, you know, the IRS was all over. Oh, you think Democrats are above it? Look at the De- If the Democrats could set a special counsel on every political opponent they have, they would. It's just a question of they can't and they don't have the resources. But if they could, they would. And they'd feel justified doing it, too. That's right. Uh, Warren wants to unleash the IRS more on people. You know what that means? They're going to build out the, make the IRS a lot bigger. That's right. They're going to have a, a tax code that is tens of thousands of pages long that nobody really even understands the full extent of that's full of cronyism and, and bad stuff for, for sure, but also is full of, you know, the government comes to you and says, you owe us money and you can't say to them, how much money do I owe you? They say, no, no, you have to tell us how much money you owe us. And then you say, but I don't know. And they say, no, well, we know the government. And if you don't know, we're going to send you to prison. That's the that's the relationship we have with the IRS right now. That is the reality of your tax authority in this country. They know they have all the answers, but they won't give the answers to you before. You got to do your thing. And if you make any mistakes, you better hope that they're gentle with you. Good luck with that one. Medicare for all is not going to cost the middle class a penny. This is absurd. Democrats are just running around lying to people about stuff. There's no way that's true. And Medicare for all will be wildly expensive, by the way. I'm going to probably spend more time talking about this on another show. We are entering an era here where there are going to be, I mean, there are some medical advances. Some of them have been around for actually a while, and people are finding out more and more about them where there's individualized uh, individualized treatments for things like cancer, different kinds of blood cancer, and they will take a, uh, they, it's called a biologic, and they'll use your own biology and body chemistry, and they'll and I mean, I, I don't even begin to understand the real way that this is done, but I just, from a, a surface level, they effectively take who, you know, what you are, your blood, and they re-engineer things and inject them back into you. And sometimes they can cure people of cancer that are going to die for sure, that are, that are terminal and are, you know, on their last legs. Um, but it can cost about $2 million for that. Who's going to pay for that? As these technologies become better and more efficient, and we start taking the market out of this system, uh, how are we going to hope the costs come down if the people that are coming up with these treatments aren't incentivized to continue making them better and better? Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And today I'd like to address another fact that the president tries to deny. The U.S. economy is working just fine for people like me. It really is. But it is badly broken for the vast majority of Americans. The president says this is the greatest economy in the history of America. Well, yeah, the stock market is at an all-time high. But almost half the country doesn't own any stocks. And the top 10 percent own about 85 percent of the market. So nearly all the gains from the market are going to a select few. That's not fair, and it's not sustainable either. I want to know, I mean, what he's saying here is, is, is technically true about who owns stock, but Bloomberg is smart enough 
He's a smart guy. He's obviously a, a legitimate self-made multi-multi-billionaire. Uh, he also knows, though, if you have a police pension, teacher's pension, stock market matters a whole lot to you. The only way those obligations can be met is with those pension funds going into the market and drawing yield. So the market affects a whole lot. And if you're trying to get a job for a company, does the stock price of that company matter to you? It does. I would also want to know what exactly Bloomberg is recommending should be done then. Uh, what should be done then to change the system so that, you know, the top, remember, the top 10% are also paying a huge portion of the taxes already in the country. So they're already funding the, I mean, the top 10% of the, of earners are already funding a huge portion of everything that the government does everywhere. And you've already started to see this. And look, it, it comes up for me, uh, you know, here in New York City, you're just getting crushed with taxes. And a lot of people are leaving from New York and New Jersey in particular to go to Florida. Florida's a very nice place, very nice weather. Parts of Florida, I think, would be just great. And I think about it all the time now. And unfortunately, well, or, or fortunately, depends on how you look at it, and this is the way the system has been set up. So that states that are rapacious and think that taking and taking and taking from makers to give to takers, remember that Mitt Romney formulation that got him in so much trouble, um, that that's, that's a good way to govern, those states start losing tax base. I think there was a switch of, from uh, New York, I think, lost $15 billion. Um, I forget what the period of time was in tax revenue that went directly to Florida because people moved to Florida. And now there are, you know, there's because of people buying houses there and there's other ways that you can be taxed in Florida, but it's not on your income year in and year out. So some states are doing quite well as a result and some states are doing badly. But Bloomberg here is being disingenuous. I mean, Democrats keep mismanaging all these wealth centers and all these places where there's an accumulation of capital, of, of human capital, of, of financial assets across the country. And then they just start siphoning off and siphoning off and siphoning off. And these places deteriorate and there's flight from them. And they don't ever learn the lesson that maybe that's not the way that you should be governing. Maybe that actually has negative consequences, not just for the people who are getting siphoned off of, but also for those that you're hoping are going to build their way up the ladder. And, and if we're going to talk about why the, and when they say the economy is not working for everyone, I mean, what does that, what does that really mean? I mean, how, what, what would an economy that's working for everyone look like? And here, here's, a, here's a fact. In every society in history, always and forever, there will always be some who have more than others because that has always been the case. So what does an economy that works for everyone look like? Um, is it, are we going to say that we want to be Sweden? Because you have very, very few people that do really well in Sweden. So you want to tell everybody you can't really, you can't really have the pursuit of your, your hopes and dreams professionally, financially, personally, um, because the collective is going to need a bigger piece of what it is that you have. If you're really looking at the ways in which things have gotten harder, um, boomers are having future generations pay for all their stuff now. So that's one look. I mean, it's just the truth. Uh, that's what's happening. That's what the system of redistribution we have is really doing. That's where most of the hole in the budget year in and year out for this country comes from. Um, you have education systems now, or rather you have the elite educational system, universities and colleges have become wild. What has become really expensive? Going to college, 
has gotten really expensive relative to what it was even two generations ago. Uh, really, really expensive. And healthcare has gotten more and more. Healthcare is now really, really, really expensive. Now, those are two areas where you can draw a direct line from what is happening to government regulation, to government imposition in the markets, deciding what should happen. And, you know, by telling everybody you can take out, you, you don't need any credit history and, you know, you, anybody can get a loan to go to college and everyone should go to college. So everyone's taking out these loans to go to college. And guess what? Universities say, oh, OK, well, everyone has the access to the capital now. So we'll make tuition 30, 40, 50 thousand dollars a year. There you go. That's pretty easy, isn't it? And then we start on the healthcare market and the way that we keep thinking about how we can take what's already there and give it out to more people more efficiently instead of incur instead of setting up ways for the market to become more efficient and better so that there's greater there's greater access through the market. You know, you, you want doctors motivated to show up and put in long hours and give good care because it's in their interest to do so. You can mandate it as much as you want from government. I mean, this is just a simplification of the whole problem with the healthcare system. You can mandate it all day. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, you're mandated to get assistance from the DMV. Doesn't mean that's going to work out well for you. Uh, so this is this is the way I just I I would expect more from Bloomberg. But look, he's got to play the populist card now. He's got to get the middle the middle class. Everyone's always fighting over the middle class. It's just populism. It's just a form of the most voters. Most people think of themselves as middle class, so you appeal to the people that you think you can get votes from and you tell them things that aren't true. Bloomberg should know better, but I think he does know better, but he's just being a demagogue here. No surprise. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. All right, we got roll call. First, I just want to say that Netflix has a series out, a Dracula series, and I was excited because I, you know, you guys know I'm into Dracula, and I tried to watch a little bit of it last night. It's just, it's just bad. How do you make a bad? And by the way, they're trying to keep it pretty, pretty true to the novel. Um, you know, the Bram Stoker's original novel, and it's just not well executed at all. And I, I get so angry because I'm like, why, why can't they do this? Why can't they make it look cool? Do you like anything? I like a lot of things. I, I can't remember the last time you came on and said, I loved this. Were you here when I talked was. about The Mandalorian? I was like okay. giving The All Mandalorian right, a foot massage. Other than The Mandalorian. All right. I'm just, well, this I mean, year, that's been one thing. I'm going to talk to Jesse Kelly next week about 1917 when his, All right. when his royal Texasness. I think it's finally uh, out this weekend. It. No, it's out like nationwide widely. this weekend. Yeah, have you seen it yet? No, I mean it was only out in Manhattan. Really, it's good. Yeah. You should see it. You should see it. So we can also right. get your take on it. But it, you know, it's it's not Saving Private Ryan good, but it's good. It's good. Um, yeah, no, Mandalorian was great. I mean, dude, anyone who saw The Witcher knows. One of our actual producers at, at uh, uh, Red Seat, um, they they agree that the, the Witcher is just terrible. So The Witcher is really really garbagey. And you agree with me, by the way, that. Bad blood on Netflix. The first season's pretty watchable yes. for what it is, and then it's like it's like they took season two 
and they took a car full with dynamite and drove it off a cliff. Basically, yeah, yeah. that's what happened. I mean, I couldn't even, I got like three. I mean, I watched it just because I, I don't like to not finish stuff. I mean, I've never seen a show where there's a mafia boss who's supposed to be so powerful and he's doing all of his own gunfights all the time. I'm like, that's not how the mafia works. No, not at all. Not at all. You have people to fight for. You got for your you. people yeah. that do that. Yeah. You go to war, it doesn't mean you're the head mafia guy and you're walking around with a pistol and you're trying to like fight no, everybody no, yourself. You wouldn't use a pistol. Correct. Probably. Right. I mean, you know. Kick it old school. They got a Tommy gun. But my Tommy gun don't. I got to say, I watched I watched uh, Home Alone 1 and 2 over the Christmas break. <laughs> the best Do you part, like those? The best part. Oh. Of, of course. <laughs> Shut your face. The best is, uh, is the, you know, those little things, though, where he's like, you've been smooching with my brother. You know, yes. they make those black. They made those yeah. for that. I found that out recently that they made those. That's the, the best. The movie those are, those the things movie. are so. <laughs> but Johnny, I tell you, I was at the Copacabana last night, you know. No, you weren't. I'm going to give you to the count of three to get your lousy, no good keister off my property. It's it's the best. It's the best. Anyway. anyway. How do you feel about Canada taking our president out of those movies? Did you see that? Yeah. Oh. You never commented on it. I figured I'd ask. It's very sad. Yeah. It's very sad. You know, he had a great moment, you know. I didn't see anyone else trying to help Kevin find the uh, entrance to the lobby. Thank you very much. Yeah. Good Just point. Saying. Just saying. That's what I'm here for. The good points. Uh, let's hear from the folks. Barry um, writes, Shields High, I enjoy your show. I have a bone to pick over the Trump doctrine. The Trump doctrine is to employ economic pressure first and foremost. Military force is used very selectively and very limited to sending a specific message. So far, it's been great success with Iran, Russia, and China. The North Koreans the only ones who don't care about their people starving. Uh, well, Barry, I mean, that's what, in that regard, everybody, that's, that's the doctrine of every administration. So I, I'm... I got a bone to pick with you. I don't think that's really enough. I mean, that's like saying the doctrine is, you know, peace through strength. Okay, well, everyone says that, right? What's really different about Trump than other? Because the economic pressure against North Korea, against Iran, uh, that has been exactly the same. And everyone thinks that they use selective military force. Although, to be fair to what you're saying, obviously, Bush and Obama both brought down uh, countries, decided they were going to invade places. Kyle writes, Buck, I don't think the speaker will send the impeachment articles to the Senate until after the primaries and convention produces a clear nominee. If she sent it now, a lot of candidates would be stuck in the Senate. Just a thought. Who knows what her machinations truly are? Great show, as always. Well, Kyle, I mean, you know, I'm not even sure that Pelosi knows what, what the game plan is here. So I can't say that you are. I can't say you're wrong on this one. You may, in fact, be correct. So there you have it. Um, Andrew. Following up on girls in blue jeans, the low-waist 90s jeans only look sexy on very skinny women. Women that occasionally eat need high-waisted jeans. I'm not saying it can't be, like, a little bit high. I'm talking about when it's, like, way above the belly button, though. That's what, that's, like, it's, those are two, your pants shouldn't be above the, they shouldn't be above the belly button if you're under the age of 60. This is at the point where we need to stop talking about this, but. That's fair, that's fair. All right, somebody wanted to weigh in on that one, though. But I, I agree with you, Bruce and Mark. I agree with you. Karen writes, um, uh, Hi, Buck. I love your show on the podcast. Big fan. However, this is where I can send in a roll call message. I agree with your views on everything except one thing. Last night, you spoke of men's facial hair and beards with Bruce and Mark. I have, to agree, I have to disagree that beards are the thing. Has there been a survey on how women prefer clean-cut men over beards? Um... You have great hair, but you shouldn't cover a great face with a full beard. 
Many women think men grow beards to compete with other men to prove they can grow one, but do most women prefer a clean or limited facial hair over a beard? Uh, you should survey women over men. I absolutely love your show. Keep up the fight. <laughs> when we when we veer into like men's grooming and fashion, producer Mark, you know the team people have the thoughts on this. Yeah, we get more messages about on this, this than, than anything else. I know. I'm like, how are we going to avoid war with Iran? By the way, ladies, keep those high heels. You know what I mean? It's that's yeah. I think you look like ten years older with the beard on. Anyway, yeah, for sure. Like I looked at your old headshot and you're like, oh my god, you look like you're twelve. Or 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 eighteen. Okay, fine, eighteen. There we go. Oh. Gina. Hi again, Buck. Okay, so powdered wigs served a very major but icky purpose. <laughs> More on the fashion, dude. It's amazing. Very icky purpose. Lice. Lice was a very common ailment in the old world. Many folks had lost hair as a result, and the lice did not respond respond well to both the powder and a fashion accessory or the wig, a deterrent to further spreading. I I do not know if this is true, but it certainly sounds plausible, I guess. I don't know. Never heard that before. So interesting. Um, thank you, Gina. That's that, I was unaware of that. Uh, let's see here. Rich. Hey, Buck, maybe this has changed by the time you get this, but I found it odd that Trump didn't make a reference to the Ukrainian plane crash, not even a somewhat basic condolence no tweet either with iran reportedly unwilling to release the uh, well rich i think we, we have addressed this now on the show and that i think trump was waiting i mean look i knew that this was a missile strike i mean i shouldn't say i knew but i mean that's what i was waiting for it's why yesterday i was talking to you guys about the mh17 shoot down but i don't want to get ahead of facts because i wasn't there and it was conceivable highly improbable but conceivable that there was just some catastrophic mechanical failure that occurred the same night as a missile strike from Iran, you know, sending a lot of missiles through the air. But it was very, very, very unlikely. But see, unlike the the libs, I rely on facts before I tell you something is factual. I don't just go with go with my gut. Um, all right. Let's see here. Um, I took a screenshot of my boyfriend's email to you. If you see this, can you possibly read it on air? It would make him so happy. Regardless, thanks for giving him something to look forward to every day. Blessings, Carmen. All right, Carmen, sure, I'll read it. Hey, Buck, love the show. I first heard you on a post-debate roundtable on The Blaze back in 2015, and I've been a faithful podcast listener ever since. Keep up the great work. Oh, thank you, man. It's been a while since you did Action Movie Quote Friday, so here's one for Roll Call. Hey, dirtbag, you're a lousy shot. I don't like lousy shots. You wasted the kid for nothing. Now I think it's time I waste you. Shields high, Mike from... Connecticut. Um, can I get that movie quote? Uh, actually, no, I can't. I don't know what I don't know what that one is. I feel like now that we don't do action movie quote Friday anymore, we uh, not that we we didn't like ban it. We just haven't gotten to it in a while. Um, do you know what that quote is, by the way? No, but I don't even know what action movie quote Friday oh, is. The, the, oh, this predates you. Yeah. We used to have people call in and try to challenge me in real time on air with an action movie quote to see if I could get it in real time. Mm. And mm. I was like the action movie quote ninja. Obviously I was not. Pr- I was basically undefeated. You're 0 for 1 in the producer Mark era. So. <laughs> wow. Producer Nick got it. Cobra with Sly Stallone. Producer Nick's better than both of us. Apparently. Mm. Well, that wouldn't be the first time. Uh, let's see here. We have, thank you, Carmen. Thanks for writing in. Tell your boyfriend, Shields High, big high five. Mark, 
right. Buck, I love the show. Um, well, this is really long. Uh, whoa, whoa, team. Shields high. Mark, I, I don't have time for this one right now because we only got about 20 seconds left in the show. Man, the show flew by today. Is tomorrow Friday? Good heavens. Merciful heavens. Tomorrow's Friday. Uh, we'll have to see how that goes. By the way, I watched uh, Lady and the Tramp. That's where Merciful, in the he- Merciful Heavens comes from. It's a great Disney flick, by the way. You know? Well, he's uh, talking to me. You know, when he does the whole, this is, this is the night, this is a beautiful. It's a great. Go watch Lady and the Tramp. It'll put a smile on your face. Great movie. Uh, that's the show for today. Shield tie.